Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. This podcast is proudly presented by Sastrify. Sastrify is the agile SaaS buying and management solution for progressive tech companies to help you to consolidate all SaaS procurement in a single platform and reduce your SaaS spendings in terms of time and money significantly. Sastrify's procurement experts negotiate with your SaaS vendors, such as Google, Miro, Asana, or Salesforce, to get the best possible price for existing and new contracts, as well as for upcoming renewals. My company, OMR, is a customer of Sastrify, and we were able to save a lot of time normally spent on SaaS negotiations and reduce our software spendings dramatically. They have a large base of satisfied customers, such as Gorillas, Runtastic, and Westwing. Their promise is savings guaranteed. Sastrify saves you more money than it costs. You can get a free analysis of your SaaS tools now. Just visit sastrify.com slash alphalist and benefit from a special 50% discount for Alphalist podcast listeners for the first three months. Welcome to the Alphalist podcast. I am your host, Toby, and today I have a really crazy guest. He has a crazy career. He founded, led, and sold multiple companies to big enterprises, and now he is running an AI institute. His name is Oren Edzioni, and he is the CEO of the Allen Institute for AI. Um, and we want to talk about what excites him about AI in the year 2022. Um, Oren, maybe we could start with my my favorite question. Actually, your your nerd path. Like, how how did you get into computing? How did you get where you are today? Well, uh, Tobias, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let, let, let let me give the the short answer. I, I was fortunate in um, my um, high school that they brought in an old, you know, one of the early uh, personal computer models, the uh, TRS-80, or the Trash-80, as some people called it. And um, we were able to play with it. And so my first programming language was basic, and I was completely hooked. It just seemed uh, so cool to be able to get the computer to do uh, simple things. And so I just absolutely loved that. So I think that's my uh, introduction at relatively late age compared to some of the kids today, but um, to computers, and I just loved it from the word go. But it was always the case to me that the computer seemed like a very powerful pencil. It didn't seem like I was in love with computers as computers. I was in love with using computers as a tool to do things. And so I became very interested in what can we get computers to do. And then at the end of high school, I read the famous book 
by Douglas Hofstadter at Gödel Escherbach that among talking about music and metamathematics and many topics also talked about AI. And then I became fascinated with the question, can we get a computer to be intelligent? And if so, how? And as they say, uh, the rest is, uh, is history. It's been uh, more than uh, 30 years since then. Wow, it's been 40 years since then. I'm getting older. And a lot of twists and turns, but I'm still fascinated with that question. And um, can you tell us a bit more about the story behind the Allen Institute? Is like, as far as I know, it's it's founded by Paul Allen, um, the the late Microsoft founder. Um, where did you meet him, and and how did you get into business with him? So Paul Allen has always been a visionary. Uh, I read his autobiography, Idea Man, and he talks there about his fascination with uh, AI, with the automatic understanding of text and knowledge uh, back in the 70s. Uh, so, right, very much a visionary. And back in the 70s, he asked a question that's still very profound today. He said, look, it's one thing to create an index of a book, effectively what today we call a search engine. It's quite another thing to understand the contents of the book so that you can answer questions about the book draw conclusions based on the knowledge that's in there. And he said, again, decades ago, I want to build a machine that understands the, the knowledge more than just organizing it uh, and being able to retrieve uh, 10 blue links. And so uh, with that, uh, in 2013, he had the idea to create an AI research institute with, with that focus, focus on knowledge and semantics and text. And um, uh, his, uh, his team approached me, and uh, I, you know, I interviewed with him, and uh, we hit it off right away. It was, uh, it was wonderful. And for me, it was wonderful because I had already been an academic for many years, and I was bemoaning how incremental the academic process is. One more paper, another paper, right? I was getting older, and it was it felt kind of slow. I wanted to say, can we take bigger, bolder steps? And here was a visionary who wanted that as well, and he had uh, obviously amazing resources at his uh, disposal. And so I uh, left the University of Washington, where I was a professor, and people asked me, why would you do that? And I said, because with Paul Allen, the sky's the limit. We can go um, anywhere. We can go very far with his vision and with his resources. And my job was to, in collaboration with him, execute on that. And uh, did he back the Institute or how, how is the Institute financed? So what happened is uh, first he hired me into his um, holding company, which is called Vulcan Incorporated. And that company had his sports teams and his uh, biological sciences institute, brain science institute called ABES, the Allen Institute for Brain Science. It just had everything. And my job was to write the plan for the institute, which I did. And then with what is very rapid-paced Uh, for this sort of thing, within three, uh, four months, by January 1st, 2014, we were able to create a new institute. Uh, formally, we moved into space for the institute in June. And ever since then, he's has been 
uh, and now his his estate since he passed away has been backing uh, the Allen Institute. We've now fast forward eight years, reached uh, more than 200 people in the, the research institute. Our budget is roughly around 100 million dollars a year, so we're very uh, fortunate to have that kind of backing. And in addition to that, something that he was always interested in and was part of the institute for day one. From day one, in addition to the nonprofit research, we have an incubator. The way many universities in the United States, like University of Washington or Stanford, uh, spin out companies based on university research. Google's obviously one of the most prominent examples of that. Well, we spin out companies out of AI too, based on our research. And uh, and this incubator, which is another part of the institute, uh, has now reached uh, $500 million in the aggregate valuations of companies created. So if you take all the companies and their financing rounds, right, which assign them a value, or their acquisitions, we had a company that was acquired by Apple, the total uh, valuation is upwards of $500 million. And obviously, we're very proud of that. And uh, you just mentioned that one of the companies has been uh, sold to Apple. Um, what what has the company been doing? So another aspect of uh, the Institute has been computer vision. And our computer vision efforts were led by uh, Ali Farhadi, who was a professor at University of Washington and shared his time with uh, the Allen Institute, or AI2 as we call ourselves and um, is a leading computer vision researcher. And he and his colleagues um, developed algorithms that look at how do you do computer vision on the edge, as it's called, in a small device like a phone, a camera, even a watch. How do you do it without, without uploading images to the cloud? Right? So in situations where, because of bandwidth constraints or maybe with a drone, where you have intermittent connectivity, or maybe with a car where it's critical to process it locally and in real time, for all of these reasons, um, you, you may want processing as it were on the edge. By the way, privacy is a very important one. If you have images and you don't want to upload them to the cloud because uh, you don't trust uh, uh, that. So uh, they developed technologies for doing computer vision on the edge with much lower uh, energy consumption. So same accuracy, but 10 times better uh, battery life. And that technology uh, allowed all kinds of vision applications that were quite remarkable in the Internet of Things, uh, in cameras, in uh, stores like Amazon's Go, where you process images to see who's buying what, all kinds of, of things. And ultimately, Apple bought that. And again, I don't know what their considerations are, right? They're a, a secretive company. But if you think about it, the uh, a big selling point for iPhones and devices like that is privacy. Uh, Apple prides themselves on, on the privacy as opposed to, say, Android, which uh, tracks you more. And so it's natural for them to want to do as much of the computer vision as possible on the phone. Yeah, and not only vision, but also make Siri understand your stuff offline and um, understand what you want actually offline. Um, that's, that's not only like privacy-wise a, a good thing, but like also from the user experience, right? Um, Absolutely. And is it then like somehow 
similar to what what OpenCV does these days, or so it is similar to OpenCV. It's just better. Um, the uh, some of the algorithms in OpenCV, in, in particular uh, YOLO, were actually developed by Ali and his uh, students. And uh, what what their um, the company was called Xnor.ai. What Xnor was able to achieve is very similar functionality, but at much lower. Uh, energy utilization, which is critical when you're trying to conserve battery life. By the way, I, I should say that your point about Siri and natural language processing and speech recognition is very astute because it turns out that nowadays, right, deep learning powers all these tools and transformers in particular, right, a particular deep learning architecture is becoming ubiquitous across vision uh, speech recognition and natural language processing. And so by building the ability to do these sorts of things much more efficiently, that benefits all these applications, including Siri. And wasn't YOLO developed by some guy who also did TED Talks, um, Joseph Redman, who then stopped working on it because he was, was, um, he saw that it's kind of could be used or could be misused um, for, for certain things. He doesn't want the tech to be used. So Joseph Redman uh, was Ali's PhD student. So they, ah. he's, yeah, he's the, he's the lead of that. And he worked closely with Ali on developing YOLO. And you're right that uh, Joseph get a famous TED talk and that he stopped working on this topic. I, I don't exactly know why. It may be uh, his concerns about misuse, but it may be other reasons as well. I, I just frankly don't don't know. But that's that's one of the that's actually one of the dangers um, that that I would also be yeah somehow be afraid of. I, I recently uh, was was talking to one of the founders of Raspberry Pi, and I mean, let's face it, this device is everywhere, right? So. Um, it, it, uh, I don't know if it's used in, in, in rockets or whatever <laughs> these days or missiles. So wouldn't you be afraid of that? Well, a couple of points. First of all, one of the chips that's, that um, Exno worked on and was remarkably successful and was actually Raspberry Pi. So again, you're absolutely right that uh, that efficiency drives uh, broader usage and particularly uh, in that context. The way I think about the question you raised is it's a general question about technology and the more powerful the technology, the more urgent the question. So the question is, as we build uh, technology uh, and that technology is a two-edged sword, uh, how much do we worry about misuse? And I guess I would categorize technology, first of all, into basic research, like when Einstein invented the theory of relativity, should he have been worried about atom bombs and hydrogen bombs? And, and, and I would argue, no. I would argue that uh, when you're doing very basic research, um, you want to uh, progress, achieve progress in the understanding of humanity. At the other extreme, I would say uh, chemical weapons and landmines, right? Those are also uh, technologies quite sophisticated, and those are highly targeted for uh, negative use. And in fact, we have international conventions that ban them. So now you have technologies like facial recognition, which are, I would say, somewhere in the middle. 
on the one hand, um, they're definitely not fundamental things like the theory of relativity or the invention of computers. On the other hand, um, they're, they can be used for good or for ill, and certainly they've been used for ill. You know, they've been mistrained and they're used for surveillance uh, by dictators and in China and so on. But that said, uh, I see that technology as, as dual use. So what I would be for is figuring out, as we develop these technologies, how to use them appropriately. Yeah, and um, I think appropriate use for Raspberry Pi was at least meant to be like a learning computer, right? Um, and that's amazing. Um, and then <laughs> it's, I mean, let's imagine you 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 found that that technology, you 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 come up with the technology, and then you build it for learning, and then suddenly you see that it's used in I don't know <laughs> bad things. Um, well. But this is the story of technology repeated over and over again. Let's take yeah. a more prominent example, right? Uh, Facebook and social networks. Uh, so Facebook has been used very much for ill with uh, misinformation and supporting genocide in Myanmar and uh, for terrorists to communicate with each other. Um, so that's clearly negative. But do we throw out the baby with the bathwater? And I don't think you have to look very far. You can just look to LinkedIn which is also a social network, generally used a lot more positively to see that um, the problem isn't with the underlying technology. The problem is with how you apply it, how you regulate it, and, and we're still learning. What are the appropriate constraints on networks? And of course, looks like, say, Elon Musk uh, and I might have different uh, points of view about moderation and so on, but we're, we're trying to figure it out. <laughs> so um one one little let's say provocative question um when i when i think about ai and the progress that i that 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 is like at least visible on the surface it's it's very evolutionary right so it it's sometimes sometimes a bit boring like at least if you're like in a, in a certain distance um they're like several revolutions like GANs or GPT-3 and apart from that there's not so much to see um, what was exciting to you in the field of, of machine learning in the last two years and, 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 and why um, and what do you see will be like potentially the next breakthrough moments in the next two years ahead so first of all I do think that any success story, whether it's GPT-3 or AlphaGo or, or the next remarkable uh, technology, has always always has a rich history. And so uh, when AlphaGo defeated the world champion in Go, uh, I, want, I, I said, look, uh, our overnight success has been 30 years in the making, because of course, uh, game tree search and evaluation functions and uh, many of those things have been studied extensively over a long uh, period of time, as well as the deep learning techniques that were, that were used in AlphaGo. The same is with GPT-3, right? Um, you can trace ideas in there actually easily to the 50s, where a famous linguist named Harris said, you shall know a word by the company it keeps. 
basically the way to understand the meaning of words is to look at their context. And ultimately that led to word to vec which led to Elmo, which led to Bird, which led to GPT-3. But GPT-3 is really uh, a scaled up language model and language modeling of that kind have been around for, for years and years. Now, to go directly to your question, over the last couple of years, there have been some very exciting advances, uh, particularly around self-supervised learning. So one of the big challenges with all these algorithms is they require massive amounts of data, but it's not just the data, which now, of course, we can store and transmit and harvest uh, faster than ever due to Moore's law and, and its, uh, its variants. But that data has to be labeled, right? Somebody has to take some data item and say, this is an instance of this category. This is so-and-so's face, or this is a car, or this is a sentence, whatever the categories you're using are. Well, labeling data at the level of billions of data points uh, is expensive and problematic. And one of the remarkable things about uh, GPD-3 and similar systems is that they figured out how to use the inherent structure of the data to label itself. Basically, they turn uh, a set of sentences, uh, billions of sentences, into a set of fill-in-the-blank questions. So if I say uh, peanut butter and, you might say jelly, at least if you're in America. If I say Manchester, you might say United if you're British, or you might say Manchester City, right? But the point is that we, based on our knowledge of, of the world and of text, are able to easily fill in the blank. Well, the heart of the GPT-3 training algorithm is solving literally billions of these uh, fill-in-the-blank questions efficiently to develop a model that now allows me to predict the next word in a sentence, and of course that allows me to generate. So. Uh, without getting into a lot of details, the shift from relying on massive amounts of label data to the sh to self-supervised uh, data where you don't have to uh, pay the cost of, of labeling is a huge, huge advance. And, and we've seen that play out in NLP and more recently even in computer vision and in multimodal systems. We just released a system called Merlot Reserve that can answer questions about uh, videos that's going to appear in a, uh, the CVPR conference later, later this year, and so on and so on. So if I had to say one thing in the last two years, that's it. It's the advances with self-supervised uh, data. And then I can go and talk about uh, what I see for the future. Obviously, that's a lot more speculative because uh, things are moving so fast and in such uh, unexpected ways. So, but what comes after unsupervised learning? I mean, what's, what's the next step? Well, one thing that I see is uh, applications of that for all kinds of generation, right? So these models aren't just uh, self-supervised, um, they're also generative, right? GPT stands, for, the G there stands for generative. And uh, OpenAI released DALI2, which generates pictures, which is quite an amazing thing, is you type in a sentence and it generates a picture or an image, I should say, not a picture, uh, based on that. And often those images are uh, surprisingly high, high quality. So generative abilities 
create huge, huge new markets, uh, huge, huge new applications that we're just starting to understand. So, for example, a writing assistant. For example, help in automatically constructing customer support uh, emails, uh, new applications in art. Uh, we can build tools for artists, tools for writers, tools for composers. I think uh, more and more we're going to see that. And then a second very different kind of application is that these models are more and more being used in biology, right? So biology has become uh, increasingly digital with uh, our increased understanding and decoding the uh, human genome. And as a result of that, there are more and more ways in which AI techniques, which are ultimately techniques for analyzing uh, massive amounts of data, particularly sequential data, more and more AI and deep learning is being used in uh, various applications in biology, from protein design to figuring out 3D protein structure, which is called protein folding. And just to give you a sense of that, um, there's longstanding uh, competitions in figuring out 3D structures of protein. And uh, very recently, a program from um, uh, DeepMind called AlphaFold play on AlphaGo, uh, won that competition uh, by a long shot. And others have joined the fray and created variants of, uh, of that sort of technology as well. So we are really at the beginning of an explosive use of AI and deep learning in biology. Okay. And, and in real life, like where, where does the end user see it? I mean, uh, Tesla self-driving these days isn't so impressive so far. <laughs> Will that change? Or <laughs> or is it like a slow progression where you see it entering your life more and more? Um, and at a certain point, it's, it's at perfection? So uh, I, I think that um, there, there are two things going on. And the one is that we tend to overestimate how quickly technology progresses in the short run and tend to underestimate how quickly it progresses in the long run. And so what's happening right now when you ask how is AI entering my life is it's entering surreptitiously and slowly through improvements to the Google search engine, which you may not be aware of, or improvements to Siri that are that are small, or improvements to the self-driving, which are uh, very incremental and, and perhaps boring. But uh, bit by bit, uh, pardon the pun, they, they, they do get better. The other thing that happens, though, is we reach an inflection point, and all of a sudden, brand new applications become available. And let me give you a fantastic example of that. We started studying as a field speech recognition the technology of understanding spoken signal and mapping it to text in the 50s and, and 60s. And over the decades, uh, improvement was you know, slow and intermittent uh, and so on. And in recent years, uh, it sped up substantially. And then all of a sudden, applications like uh, Alexa and other voice-based assistants were possible. So hmm. it was kind of boring, if you will, for a while. And then all of a sudden, it reached that tipping point where the technology was just still not perfect. You know, Alexa understood me, uh, misunderstood me this morning, but still it was good enough that suddenly we, uh, these devices are, are ubiquitous and we're still trying to figure out how, how they're going to be used. So I think we're going to have uh, both these incremental advances and then these sudden inflection points.
Yeah, I still remember me sitting in front of my computer as a 16-year-old and uh, trying Dragon naturally speaking and <laughs> training it for days. <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, right. yeah, me, me too. And uh, I think that uh, experience uh, illustrates an interesting and important point, which is often when these technologies emerge, because people are so wonderfully adaptive, particularly in the first generations, they're kind of training us to use them rather than uh the the technology is being trained to to work with us which is ironic so like most people in ai who are knowledgeable about most parts of it um often predict like a very positive feature around uh, a positive future around ai um i guess you too do you still sometimes are you still sometimes afraid um that that bad things could could happen because of this or uh, that like at a certain point we could lose control well again i would separate two points one is is ai going to have a negative impact on, on humanity and i feel like this is not a question of being afraid this is guaranteed And again, the example I would give you as an analogy, look at transportation technology uh, with cars and planes. Uh, we have uh, phenomenal abilities to move ourselves much better than we had uh, in the past before, say, we had cars. But at the same time, we have tremendous pollution, we have congestion, and we have in the United States 40,000 highway deaths each year, right? So we've kind of struck a Faustian bargain with this technology. We get good things out of it, but also very much bad things. I think that's true for most powerful technologies. So is AI going to cause job displacement? Is AI going to impinge on our privacy? That's not something to be um, apprehensive about. It's guaranteed. And what we need to do is work to, to define the rules of the game to um, guide those applications. But then there's an additional fear that comes with AI that doesn't come with, say, cars. And that's that AI will take over, that we will lose control of the technology. And that's a very different kind of uh, anxiety that people have. And that anxiety, by the way, is longstanding. It goes all the way back to the golem, right? The story in the Jewish tradition of this robot uh, who comes to life. Uh, and it goes back to uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? And how that comes to life. So we've always been afraid of our technology somehow becoming sufficiently Uh, intelligent and sophisticated to stop do, doing our bidding. Um, and now, yes, modern technology is perhaps closer uh, to, to that uh, than ever, but I still think we're easily decades away. And anybody who actually works with the technology, who actually builds AI systems, knows just how uh, compliant and how controllable these systems are. The places where we have lack of control is when we try to get it to do something and it does nothing. Uh, we don't have instances where AI has suddenly run amok, you know, where a self-driving car has suddenly decided to um, drive to Cleveland instead of going home, right? It's hijacked me. And, and I think that that is actually a very important uh, example to think about. Self-driving cars are an attempt to make it increasingly safe on the roads and increasingly easy to drive or give you the ability to be driven and do something else that's more productive than constantly looking at the road. But it's not an attempt for the cars 
to hijack passengers and decide themselves where they're going to go and what they're going to do. So this kind of bounded autonomy shows that um, the fear, I think, is a fear of machine autonomy, not machine intelligence. And what I see is I see us designing increasingly intelligent, increasingly helpful tools, but not ones that are going to take over. What other helpful tools you yourself are, are working on these days? Well, um, one of the things that we are working on uh, very broadly is how to communicate more effectively with machines using natural language. And so uh, there's a variety of targeted applications, but uh, it's our hypothesis that as machines get more sophisticated, we want to talk to them using natural language, which is what's familiar to us. As a simple example, right, we want to um, uh, query databases, right? Many of us don't know SQL and are restricted by simple web forms. So we want to query databases with natural language. We can't. Uh, we want to, um, there's so much that we want to do with natural language. So we're very much working on Uh, the future of natural language processing, natural language understanding. Another uh, really important tool that uh, belongs in a nonprofit research institute is the use of AI to help scientists. So there are various um, scientific search engines out there like Google Scholar or PubMed and so on, but they're very much based on information retrieval, right? I type in some keywords, I get links to some papers. We are working on using modern AI techniques to make the process of looking for key information, key results in uh, your academic search, in your attempt to be a successful scientist, to make that much more effective, uh, much more efficient. Uh, our motto is cut through the clutter. There's millions of papers and I have a needle in a haystack. I need to find this result or this idea. Uh, let's build tools that help scientists Uh, do that. And again, the emphasis is very much on a tool. I would love it if AI could actually generate scientific inventions on its own, but we are very, very far from that. Uh, but here we, we're building a set of tools that use AI to help scientists be more efficient when they analyze and uh, process read the uh, scientific literature. So your, your heart pretty much beats for NLP then? Um, that's my own uh, area of, of interest and uh, expertise, but uh, there's certainly a lot more uh, to AI than just uh, natural language processing. So we have a thriving uh, computer vision group, We've seen exciting work in um, machine learning, right, which is kind of a tide that's lifting all these boats. Uh, there's a lot more to AI, but my interests have been, uh, yes, around natural language processing. Okay, um, so I still want, want to give people like a few concrete takeaways. Um, and one thing that I always found found hard um, in, in my time as a CTO was to somehow have science or researchers, um, data scientists and engineers under one umbrella and somehow make them play well together. Like, I guess you, you do that every day um, as, as like your work is like somehow scientific, but um, also um, pretty much 
pretty much practical um, in your incubator. How what what is the secret um, to to make that play well together? So I think you're absolutely right that uh, getting uh, researchers and engineers to work well together is hard, and it is something that we're very proud of that we've done successfully at AI too. And the core of that is recognizing that they have different uh, constraints and different orientations. You know, scientists love to run the run experiments. They love um, to uh, come up with uh, clever algorithms. And engineers love to build tools and love to think about scaling and uh, things like that. And so what we've done is we haven't created a hierarchical structure where the scientists sit on top and they tell the engineers what to do, but instead we've created a collaborative structure where sciences, scientists and engineers come together as equals and have a dialogue around what's the problem we're trying to solve, to what extent does it require scalability and robustness and tools, and to what extent does it require uh, clever algorithms, uh, rapid prototyping, uh, et cetera, which of course engineers do as well. And by making that be a mutually respectful collaboration uh, that's based on a clear understanding of the problem, we've time and again come up with uh, things that are um, actually impossible to do at the university because they don't have the engineering sophistication and the resources and that a lot of companies don't do. So some of our most successful achievements, including Semantic Scholar, the Thor uh, robotics platform, the Allen NLP uh, open source library, and more and more and more have been uh, research and engineering collaborations. And If I now start a new company where AI plays a significant role and you could give me like three tips for me as a CTO, um, which, which shortcuts I could take, like where, which, which, which pitfalls to avoid these days. I mean, it's a very broad field um, and you can, you can do so many mistakes, um, make so many mistakes. Which ones would you would you would you try to avoid for me? Well, me the first thing I have to say is you should look at our AI2 incubator website because we're constantly accepting uh, talented entrepreneurs and residents at the very early stages and actively helping them. And we accept applications internationally. So uh, that's point number one. Point number two, I think it's very natural for us as technologists to be enamored with the technology and the prowess of it, but we have to remember the business side as well. So often when I talk to technologists, I say, okay, so what is the pain point? Is this a what's called a vitamin or a painkiller? In other words, is this kind of a problem and yeah, it would be nice to solve it, or is this an urgent problem that I'm just dying to solve? And most importantly, not me, because sometimes we get passionate about small things, but that the users, that the intended market uh, is going to uh, come to a great length. So I'd say that that healthy respect for the business, which often comes from teaming up, so CTO teaming up with a business-oriented uh, co-founder or leader is is uh, incredibly important. And again, our incubator does uh, a lot of that. 
The one uh, last thing I would say, since you asked for three, so it's come to the AI2 incubator, think about the business side. And the third one is for these AI systems, which are very hungry for data, is make sure that you have your supply lines clear. In other words, where are you going to get the data from? Uh, no data, no data mining, no data, no AI. So sometimes we can build things that work great on small scale as prototypes. But when we think about how to scale them, we suddenly realize, oh, uh, I cannot get that data or that data is incredibly expensive or it's jealously guarded. So I think being very clear on where you're going to get your data uh, is an essential component of an AI company nowadays. So is there any tool you these days annoy all your friends with uh, because you like it so much and you recommend it to anyone, like uh, some, some nerdy piece of software that, that you yourself use every day? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, uh, no, nothing comes to mind. I, I try not to be uh, uh, annoying. But uh, I would say that I always like to start with the problem. So again, as technologists, uh, we have this problem that's called a hammer looking for a nail. Hey, I've got this great tool. And then everything starts to look to a nail. I actually annoy my technology friends by telling them, let's start with the problem. What's the question you're trying to answer? What's the problem you're trying to solve? And then let's pick the tool that's appropriate for the task. That's, that's a good recommendation. So. Then I have one surprise for you and um, surprising question. Maybe um, Paul Allen wrote down as like part of his testament um, and actually pointed pointed me towards that. Um, some notes about a top secret invention that you made. Um, it's a generative network that allows not only to generate real life footage uh, from the past, but actually modify the past. And he told me how to use it. And we now have the chance to try it out. Um, and I spin up a notebook and ask it to generate us back to the year of 1996, when you were working as a tech lead at NetBot, a company called NetBot. And we can observe yourself for a while now, uh, while you were like sitting there coding a bit. Um, and you now have the chance to whisper something into young Oren's ears. What would it be? Oh, wow. <laughs> What a wonderful way to put that question. I, I, I think uh, at the time I was young and doing my first startup and uh, I had some instincts, but I didn't always have the strength of my convictions. I uh, was probably overly deferential to fancy consultants who seemed to know what they were saying, but uh, didn't agree with my intuition. So I would say to uh, young Oren, uh, stick with your intuitions more. Always listen to people, always take advice, but then at the end of the day, don't accept anything on faith or on authority, but rather look to the data uh, to, to resolve these things. And, to, uh, and when the data accords with your intuitions, then you got to go with that. So I'm an empiricist and an intuitive thinker, and I will take... Um, Uh, data and intuition over conventional wisdom anytime. That's very good. <laughs> very good closing. <laughs> um, so, Oren, thanks a lot 
was great talking to you. Um, and uh, I hope we have the chance in the future again. Um, and uh, I wish you all all the luck in the world uh, with uh, your institute. Um, and uh, let's let's see where you sell your next company to. <laughs> well, Tobias, <laughs> really exciting. You. Yeah, thank thank you so much. It was really uh, fun to talk with you, and uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast. So looking forward uh, to hearing the next episode. Take care. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions to cto at alphalist.com. Send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.